Well, this morning is a heart examination, and our reading is found in Mark 7. Please turn to Mark chapter 7. Mark 7 is one of the major stopping points in any biblical tour of the subject of the heart. Mark 7. It's set in the context of an encounter between Jesus and some of the religious leaders of his day. And yet, in a way that only God's Word can, it speaks to our hearts even today. Mark 7. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is korban, that is, a gift devoted to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like that. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull? He asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean. For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach, and then out of his body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, Malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. 
Amen. This is the word of God. If you have a heart condition, you might want to close your ears at this point. A new study reported in the Times uh, newspaper this week revealed that heart treatment in the UK is among the worst in the West. Please don't share this information with anyone with a a bit of a funny heart. Uh, The truth is, however, that in the UK, uh, we have less access to defibrillators, pacemakers, and heart surgery than in most neighboring nations. Well, aren't I the bringer of glad tidings uh, this morning? You know, as I was thinking about that, the thought struck me that actually there is something worse than not having access to good heart treatment. Surely it is a worse thing, besides the treatment, not to realize in the first place that you have a heart condition. I like the man who was described in the newspaper just this week as the super fit 30-year-old who died of a heart attack. Two weeks before, he had what he suspected to be heartburn. Two weeks later, he was dead. Obviously, if I have a heart condition, I want to have access to the best treatment. But even before that, I need to understand that I have a heart condition. Now, these men in Mark chapter 7 were a group of individuals who had a heart problem, yet they didn't even realize it. Ironically, they were religious men. They were spiritual leaders. And yet, unbeknownst to them, they had spiritual heart disease. Not that they were aware of this fact. They preferred to live their lives living on the surface of things. They were obsessed with the cleanliness of their hands while they neglected the condition of their hearts. And we too, of course, can very often do the same thing. We too can neglect our hearts at the expense of our hands. We can engage in what I would describe in our first point this morning as skin-deep religion. Skin-deep religion. That's verses 1 to 13. Now, if I say that someone is skin-deep, you'll understand it's not a compliment. If someone is skin deep, then they are surface level. If someone is skin deep, they are style without substance. They are shallow without depth. They are rather like uh, perhaps the kitchen top in your kitchen. It may have a gold veneer, uh, but there may be wood rot beneath the surface. Well, these men in religious terms, practiced a skin-deep religion. Their outward appearance was that of devout men, and yet this was a superficial appearance. They were superficial in their purity, in their worship, and in their service. Now, their superficial purity, we see that in verses 1 to 5. The opening act of the story. From these first verses, we learn that uh, the backdrop was the Pharisees and 
the law teachers, these two groups, had ganged together and had trekked from Jerusalem north to Galilee. It was a trip of some 90 miles. It was not done on a whim in days before cars. And yet their keenness was not motivated by love for Jesus. It was motivated, rather, by a loathing for the Lord Jesus. Jesus' miracles and teaching was stealing their spotlight. Jesus' burgeoning popularity was pinching their crowd and their constituents. So they came to Galilee to confront Jesus. They came to Galilee to, in some way, discredit him. And as they gathered around Jesus, Mark ominously records that, they encircled Jesus as they are peering over his shoulder. It doesn't take long for a window of opportunity to open. They saw, verse 2, some of his disciples eating with hands that were unclean. Maybe it was Peter. Perhaps it was James. Maybe it was John. But they were chowing into their Big Macs with unwashed hands. Now, your mother, uh, she said a similar thing, didn't she, at the tea time table? Wash your hands before you eat. She was concerned about hygiene. Hygiene is not what the Pharisees were concerned about. And what they were concerned about, we might say, was spiritual hygiene. The Jews believed that physical contact with non-Jews could defile their souls. If you were, say, down in the marketplace for the day, in the course of everyday business, your body would be rubbing up against non-Jews. Why, you may even have shook hands with a Gentile or a sinner. Now you had a problem. There was defilement on your hands. And if you put those defiled hands onto your food, the defilement would transfer to your food. And if you then put that defiled food into your mouth, then the food, they thought, would defile your heart. And so, to counteract this, they engaged, as Mark explains to his Gentile readers, who wouldn't have understood this, in verses 3 and 4, they engaged in ceremonial washing of the hands. They ritually purified their hands before each meal. Some of them were so eager that they washed their hands between courses. They even went to the extent, as Mark tells us, of washing the crockery, the kettle and the, and the pots and the pans. And yet here were these followers of Jesus, blatantly ignoring this purity practice. They were blatantly ignoring this tradition. Incidentally, it was a tradition. In the Jewish law, it was not stipulated that all Jews had to cleanse their hands before meals. Only the priests had to do that. The Pharisees and their friends had gone beyond the tradition in an attempt for external purity. And now that the disciples of Jesus aren't playing ball, the situation is this. <laughs> they look more pure than Jesus' disciples. It's easy to look more holy than other people, isn't it? It's easy to appear more holy than the next guy or the next girl. If you've been around church for a little while, as I have, 
you certainly know what it takes to look holy. And very often, interestingly, it focuses on the outward and the external. I don't uh, drink, and I don't swear, and I wear the right kind of clothes. And I pray publicly in the prayer meeting. And I, I arise at 5 a.m. every morning to do my quiet time. Other people can't see that, so I need to tell them about that. Look at me. If I say so myself, I'm a couple of notches holier than the next person. We may look that way, but like the Pharisees, in striving for the external marks of purity, we might end up with just a superficial purity. They also engaged in superficial worship. Did you notice that? Remember the question that they had asked Jesus. Jesus, why don't your disciples wash their hands when they eat? Jesus understands the malevolent motives of their heart. He sees beyond the front, and to be honest, he's a little browned off with them. His response is not too polite. He calls them, firstly, hypocrites. They are spiritual play actors. And then he quotes from Isaiah 29, in which the prophet said, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. It's a funny thing, says Jesus, but that really old text from 800 years ago is actually speaking about you. Isaiah was prophesying about you. You are the hypocrites, he says. You're like an actor on the stage. You know the right lines to say in worship, and yet your heart is a million miles away from what you're saying. The result is pointless praise. The end of uh, the verse, verse 7, they worship me in vain. Of course, it's a timeless lesson for the worshiper in 2009. Honoring God with my lips minus honoring God with my heart equals no worship. Praising God with my lips minus Praising God in my heart equals no worship. Vain worship. When I stand in the congregation with a tremendous orchestra like this morning, when I stand simply mouthing the words while my thoughts are on the lunch that I'm about to have in a couple of hours, there may be words, but there is no worship. When I offer up that Thanksgiving prayer at the tea time table, and it's the same tired, trite words. There may be words, but there probably isn't worship. I'm very guilty of that kind of thing myself. Their worship was superficial. Their purity was superficial. And the trend continues, thirdly, their service was superficial as well. Now, this is also in the context uh, of Jesus' counterattack against these teachers. And he imagines a situation of pastoral need. In fact, he probably does more than imagine it. This would have reflected real situations that he had observed. And he imagines a scenario where a man's parents are in financial straits. Now, in Jewish culture, it seemed a no-brainer that if your parents were hard up, you obviously bailed them out financially. I mean, this was a society that had the Jewish law. And the fifth of the laws said in the Ten Commandments, 
honor your father and your mother. It also said, as Jesus also points out, that, that if you cursed your parents, you were ready for the death penalty. So you might imagine that in such a situation, a son would cough up a little cash for his mom and dad. But this was not happening. The Pharisees, uh, through their influence, were urging people to forsake helping out their parents in this way. Now, the loophole to the law was a practice called korban. It was actually a biblical practice. It's mentioned uh, more than 80 times in the Old Testament. Uh, Corban was where you chose to devote some of your wealth, a certain amount, to God. If you had a thousand pounds in your bank account, you might say 500 of those pounds are Corban pounds. They are God's pounds for God's use. I couldn't simply take those 500 pounds and go down to Tesco and buy the messages. You couldn't use them for everyday things. But what was happening was that, that if a son had a parent who was in financial difficulty, and yet most of his money was tied up in Corban, the Pharisees were saying, you can't use that money to help your parents. You need to tell them that money is dedicated to God. Now, this looked like service to God. This really did look like giving God their best. But actually, it wasn't service at all. Actually, This was selfishness, not service. Jesus says here that their tradition was usurping God's law. He says here that uh, cash uh, was uh, overcoming the necessity of compassion. Again, how often we can look as though we're serving the Lord when in fact I'm actually serving myself. We can do that. We, we, We can... We can superficially serve well with the wrong motives. Oh, I can just see it now. New pastor, Ballymoney Baptist Church. Out of the office, I've got things to do now that I'm a pastor of a church, you know. Out of the office, preparing sermons, two sermons now every week. On committees, you know, governing things, telling people what to do. Uh, that won't happen. Uh, in people's homes, you know. Flying in for a visit. So many things to do. So much to do. Maybe it'll end up that I'll always be out and about. I can just hear the conversation right now. My wife will phone me up and she'll say, can I arrange to have a conversation with you? (laughs) Just to refresh myself on what you look like. And she'll say, you're always out and you're never here. And she'll say, I don't mind having uh, three, five and unders most of the day, just not all of the day, all of the week. And maybe I'll say to her, if I'm being really cruel, that time that I can't give to you, it's Corban time. I'm serving the Lord. Look at me. I'm serving the Lord. It's kind of more convenient when it's between five and seven when the children are really rowdy in the early evening. We can look like we're serving the Lord when we're actually serving ourselves. These leaders were superficial in their service, superficial in their worship, superficial in their purity. I imagine them as something like spiritual supermodels, you know, just trying to do things that will be caught by the cameras of the religious crowd. Brother, sister, serious question. Is your 
Christian walk showy? Is it showy? Is it defined by a few external things that we think, because we do those things, we're being good Christians? Is it defined by the superficial level rather than by the heart level? Jesus longs that we leave behind skin-deep religion. He never wanted it then. He doesn't want it today from Charlotte Chapel. And so it's beneath the skin and it's to the heart that Jesus now penetrates from skin-deep religion. We come secondly and and lastly to heart-level corruption. Heart-level corruption, verses 14 to 23. Now these verses are teaching which is focused on the heart. I think it's significant, and I think it's sad that Jesus doesn't give this teaching, as far as we know, to the religious leaders. They are the ones with the heart problem. They're the ones who need this teaching. Maybe their hearts were too hard. Maybe they would never have been open to this. Instead, the teaching comes, first of all, to the crowd whom Jesus calls to him in verses 14 and 15. And then, uh, as he goes into the privacy of a house situation, he teaches the disciples further in verses 17 to 23. Now, what is Jesus' essential teaching in both of these cases? It's not difficult to sum it up. Essentially, what Jesus says is that spiritually, all human beings have a heart problem. A hard difficulty. The human difficulty is not with what is on the outside. The human difficulty is what, it, what lies on the inside. Contrary to what the teachers believe, the problem of sin isn't something that lays on the surface. Defilement doesn't come from touching things. Uncleanness doesn't come from food. Jesus says nonsense to these things. Jesus says, sin is not an outside-in problem. Verse 15, nothing outside a man can make him unclean. Food can't make you sinful, says Jesus. Neither can anything in your external environment. In fact, as he goes on to explain, when food goes into the body, it doesn't touch the heart. The food, he says, goes into your stomach. And then out of the body. The heart isn't defiled by food. Sin is not an outside-in problem, but it is an inside-out problem. Verse 15 again, it's what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. Verse 21, from within, out of men's hearts, there's a source. Men's hearts come evil thoughts. Jesus then lists 12 vices which come out of the heart. It's a catalog of iniquity. The first six are actions, sinful actions, and the second six are six attitudes, all of which emerge from the heart. Your heart, says Jesus, is capable of sinning in practically every way. J.C. Ryle comments, the wickedness of men is often attributed to bad examples, bad company, peculiar temptations, or the snares of the devil. It seems forgotten that every man carries within him a fountain of wickedness. We need no bad company to teach us and no devil to tempt us in order to run into sin. We have within us the beginning of every sin under heaven. 
In other words, Ralph says, if today God removed the influence of the devil and the influence of the world, we would still have enough within this church and within our hearts to sin quite spectacularly. You might think that if you could somehow get yourself off to a desert island with no bad influences around, that maybe your problems of sin would be solved. But that is not so. When I move house next week, uh, a week tomorrow in fact, it won't just be all the possessions I'm taking with me. I'll also be taking my sinful heart with me. I wish I could leave that behind. We have this sinful nature within us, and it is capable, says Jesus, of every conceivable sin. Now, maybe you're here this morning, and you really object to this. You say, I would never murder somebody. Maybe you're here this morning, and you say, I would never commit adultery. I'm not capable of that. But if that's what you think, I, I invite you later to read the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 to 7. Because in that passage, Jesus speaks to that very complaint. And he says, you know what? If you are sinfully angry against your brother, you are already on the road to murder. He says, if you lust after a woman in your heart, then you are already on the road to adultery. It's not a case of some people are murderers and some people are not. We're all murderers to differing degrees. We're all adulterers to differing degrees. Why? Because the seeds of those sins are already in our hearts. This is contrary to what the world will tell you is the reality of the human heart. I think there are basically three views out there. There's a view that the heart is healthy, there's a view that the heart is ill, and there's a view that the heart is spiritually dead. Some will tell you that human nature is basically good, though there aren't many people saying that now. Most will tell you that, yes, there are some problems in the human heart, but we can probably fix the problem if we make good choices. The Christian view, however, is that our hearts are shot through with sin and that left to their own devices, they will eventually die. It's one of the least popular parts of the Bible's teaching. I'm reminded of the wise man who once said, men do not reject the Bible because it contradicts itself. They reject the Bible because it contradicts them. Contradicts our pride. Contradicts our thoughts that we are good people before a holy God. Whoever you are this morning, however difficult that message seems, I beg that you don't reject this message. I beg that you accept this bad news. Not because I want you to feel bad today, but because I want to open the way for the treatment and the remedy. Because along with the bad news, there immediately comes good news. I'm a little like the doctor, you know, who in the surgery says, here's your problem. But listen, there's good news. There's a treatment for this remedy. The good news is that while the heart is the problem, our human heart problem is treatable. God offers heart treatment today. Did you know that in the Old Testament, a heart transplant is promised by God? Israel were a people who were just like us. They were sinning left, right, and center. They were always trying to clean up their outward act and clean their hands. But their hearts were always a difficulty. 
And eventually, as you move on in the Old Testament, and you come to near the the end, God says, enough is enough. I've got another plan here for you. Ezekiel 36, 25. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. What a radical solution God promised. A new heart. One day soon, the Lord said, I'm going to conduct a heart operation. I'm going to extract your sinful heart, and I'm going to replace it with a heart that is pure. Now, the surgery didn't happen immediately. If you think the NHS waiting list is bad, you know, they waited for four, five, six hundred years for this heart operation. But then, in the New Testament, then in Christ, God operates in human history. He operates on the human heart. In fulfillment of all those new heart promises, you find them in Jeremiah as well as in Ezekiel. Christ Jesus, he comes into the world. Jesus, who alone has a pure heart. Jesus, who alone has a heart unspoilt by sin. And you know, rather, rather like the heart donor, who has to die in order to give you their heart. Jesus had to die in order, as it were, that his holy heart could be transplanted into your heart. After his resurrection, the Holy Spirit is then poured out on the church, and this new heart reality, this new spirit within us, becomes a reality. The new replaces the old, and today... God offers everyone here this morning whom he calls this new heart. I wonder if you're here today and you're not a Christian. Maybe you think you can just clean up your act a little bit. I need to tell you this morning, you need to do much more than turn a new leaf. You need to receive a new heart. God has made that provision possible through the death of Jesus in your place on the cross. And then if you receive that, you will know the experience that is the joy of every Christian. Because when we come to Christ, we know the difference, don't we? We suddenly have a different kind of heart. We suddenly have desires for God and for the things of God. It doesn't mean that our hearts will be completely sinless from that point forward. It's rather like uh, there are scabs of sin that sort of remain on our new heart. We do sin less, but as someone has said, we're not sinless. Perhaps this morning we recognize that we've received this new heart, but we've not been keeping it in the best condition. Today, God offers to cleanse our hearts afresh. Draw near to God in the full assurance of faith today. Have your heart sprinkled to cleanse your conscience from that sin. When your purity is superficial, don't overlook it. Bring your heart to the Lord for cleansing. When your worship is but a veneer, don't continue it. Bring it to the Lord and cry out that he would put a right spirit within you and a steadfast heart. When our service is just a front two, let's be sure to bring that selfishness to the Lord 
and admit it. And let us ask that he will renew our hearts. I recently heard a phrase, coronary Christians. Coronary Christians, I really like that. A coronary Christian is not a superficial Christian. They are a Christian that faces up to the matters of the heart. They are a Christian who loves the Lord with all their heart. Are you? Am I a coronary Christian? Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning, the one to whom all hearts are open. Lord, whatever our outward appearance this morning, you know exactly the condition of our hearts. You know the treatment that is required. You also know at this moment how this message in the power of your spirit is speaking to hearts this morning. Lord, we pray today that you will do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Help us to put our trust not in ourselves, but in Christ. Just as we would have to put confidence in a surgeon, may we put confidence in the Savior. And may this church have a heartbeat for God, we pray, in the years that lie ahead. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.